That's not Morgan Freeman's voice, almost, but not quite. How many of you thought it was? Almost. Mississippi guy. The best voice in Hollywood is a guy from the Mississippi Delta. Isn't that great? I want to begin today, somebody get an amen out of that. I like that. I want to begin today with a word that uh, sets the tone for our series, and it's a word I'm convinced if we're going to be honest today, and how about that? How about a little honesty today? Anybody want to move away from pretense, take a breath? Let's be honest. Uh, Hear this sermon for yourself, not for the person next to you, but if we're going to be honest, I think most of us, all of us to some degree, have a love-hate relationship with this word. It's a word on the love side that many of us would say it's brought life and nourishment to me. In fact, some of us would say that it's changed my life, and you can point to moments when you have felt it, when you've experienced it, when you have done it in the life of another person or as an act of worship, and it brings you life. There's the love part of it, but there's also the hate part of the love-hate relationship, and this is a word that makes us feel uh, dutiful, makes us feel a sense of guilt, or obligation. It's a word that's befuddling and bewildering and perplexing and confusing and frustrating time and time again for so many of us. And here is that word. It's the word prayer. Let me ask you, uh, raise your hands if, uh, if prayer is always easy for you. Raise your hand if your mind never wonders when you pray. Uh, raise your hand uh, if you're never troubled by unanswered prayer. Uh, raise your hand if when somebody cuts you off in traffic, your reflexive response is to say a prayer of blessing over them. Raise your hand if, if you are a prayer Jedi warrior. I don't know if you looked around, but I didn't see a hand being raised. That's the hate part of the love-hate relationship uh, with prayer. Let me begin with the second thought of not just that l- there's a love-hate relationship with this idea. Uh, we think this, to be religious is to pray, to be human is to pray. I have a, a name. He might have snuck in here today, but uh, he lives just a few doors down from us, and he uh, will not come to church, but he seems to like us, and he seems to be very nice to us, and he caught me walking to work today, and I had my sermon notes, and I was looking at him, and I was praying. I had pregame jitters, and I was praying, and I saw my friend. He looked out his window and walked out. He goes, what you preaching on today? As if, you know, he's really that interested. And I said, well, you know, come close here. And we started talking. I was thinking of him at this part because we think that to be religious is to pray. And I told him, I gave him this point in the sermon. I said, it's not just for religious folks to pray. I believe even deeper, maybe I should say broader, to be human is to pray. You know what? He agreed with me. Maybe he was just being nice to me. Yeah, that's probably it. But listen, to to be religious is to pray. Uh, It spans, I believe, really everyone, if you broaden it, from American presidents to Irish poets to single mothers in Wichita, Kansas. They have discovered, archaeologists have discovered in places like Turkey and Indonesia, they've discovered prayers being inscribed on cave walls some 3,500 years ago. In Western Europe, I think all of you know, it's a bastion of post-religion. Yet, they interviewed non-religious people, and some 50% of them said that they have some spiritual activity at least once a month, particularly prayer. Prayer is, I believe, in us. Uh, When we gather, I said this, I believe it was on Easter, that when we gather, uh, explicitly or implicitly, we're saying that, that life is greater than death, that salvation is greater than sin, and that what we see is not all there is. There is more to this. There is something beyond, something more, something that we, that we long for. How can we just uh, confidently, uh, declare that this, just this 
brief glimpse of time that we live in, that these earthly bodies are all we have, that this, this very fast spate of years that we have, this span of years, that this, that's just it. There's nothing more. One philosopher said that the, this impulse to pray pulsates and permeates throughout uh, archaeology, throughout psychology and sociology and anthropology. It's just around us in every culture and in every soul. There's a craving for something beyond, something more, something eternal. And so we pray. There's a popular expression some old guys might recognize in the room that there are no atheists in foxholes. Ever heard that? In other words, when, you know, we, maybe you don't pray. Maybe one of the reasons that you don't pray as a, an American Christian, I'm assuming that you're an American. I'm assuming that you might be a Christian, but that there's reason that a lot of us we don't pray is because there's no sense of desperation I got a job I got a little bit of money I have an occasional problem that that brings me vexation and headache but I'm kind of moving on I can trust my life I can trust my wisdom I'm bright and I'm smart and I'm competent and I don't need God in my life now and so we don't pray as as we should if you have a Bible today I want you to turn to Matthew uh, chapter 6 Matthew chapter 6, and we will in a moment look at this uh, famous, famous prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, to be religious is to pray, to be human is to pray. But today, think about your reason, maybe it's your mind drifts. I was with some friends in my office, leaders here in the church on Monday night, and and we talked about, I even asked the question, I, I didn't mean to insult them, but I started with, do you pray? And if you pray, when do you pray and how do you pray? And one of the guys said, man, I'm at a point in my life where if I just can't sit down and pray, I have to walk, I have to have to do something because my mind wanders. One of my friends said, hey, here's a book of prayer. It's a book of a prayer from saints. It's guided prayer. And he was honest. He said, sometimes this has really helped me. Sometimes it's become dry and cold and lifeless, but it's, it's helped me a little bit. How do you pray? Uh, what's the call to pray? To, to be to be religious is to pray. Everybody agrees with that. But to be human is to pray as well. And before we get to Matthew 6, consider uh, uh, the following. The question is not, let's put this up. The question is not uh, so much, do we pray, but to whom and how? We have an idea of God that, you know, we say things like God is omnipotent and God is omnipresent and God is omniscient omniscious he's all powerful he's uh he's everywhere he's all knowing we talk about the ontological and cosmological and teleological reasons for his existing all those things can be good but yet in the middle of arguing for god we have assumptions and often wrong assumptions about god we have a view that god is somewhere out there and somehow in some strange way he's watching us through some cosmic video feed and then on Sundays, he makes an appearance maybe to, to some church, only the good churches, but God comes in and a lot of worship leaders don't help the cause out when they say, hey, God, we invite you here today as if God is outside wanting to be let in. God, we invite you here. And so, and then after Sunday, God who makes his appearance maybe once a week to some of the best churches around, God leaves and goes back to doing what he was doing and you and I, well, we go back to doing what we were doing. And this God, this view of God, that God is out there somewhere, maybe occasionally watching us, busy with other things, is the reason I believe, uh uh-oh, going to rattle some cages here, but it's the reason I believe it's so easy for us to lie and cheat and lust and live selfishly. Because he's out there. 
And he doesn't care as much out there as he does about the sacred places. So there's a false sense of security we get. It's sort of a Santa Claus, fairy tale, nursery rhyme, lullaby sort of mindset that we have. Not a robust theological idea about God, but we assume these things about God. And it's downright silly. Thousands of years ago, a man appeared, a God-man, and he brought it into question. What if the somewhere out there view of God, who might occasionally pay attention to us, but is busy with other things, what if that view of God is incorrect? He challenged people, even religious people, those were the hardest ones to swallow this, to open up their minds to encompass this lofty and great and life-changing idea. Jesus had people wonder. He had them guess. He put it right there in front of them as if it was a fork in the road, a decision that they would need to make. What if God is not out there? What if God, ready for this drum roll, what if God is right here? What if God is near? What if God is at the laundromat? and in the neighborhood, and in the workplace, and at home, and what if God is with us everywhere? And into this reality, Jesus invites us to think that God is in the room. Years ago, when I was younger and the kids were, we were out west on vacation, and we noticed at a a food court there was, um, there was a celebrity, a guy named Jeff Van Gundy. Anybody recognize the name Jeff Van Gundy? He was a head coach at uh, the time of the New York Knicks. Or, or no, he had just coached the New York Knicks, and he was an a, a announcer on NBA. And you'd see him on TV all the time. And I was the first one to recognize him. I began telling people in the family, hey, there's Jeff Van Gundy. Susan's like, who? I'm like, Jeff Van Gundy, Jeff Van Gundy. So we were making kind of a big deal about Jeff Van Gundy. And I didn't want to be the creepy guy taking a picture or, you know, going up and saying, hey, Jeff, Robert, I pastor in Mississippi. How you doing? So I sent my son over to have a picture taken with him. This is, uh, this is RJ when he was young and Jeff Van Gundy. Isn't that great? And RJ's randomly wearing a Philadelphia Eagles hat. I have no idea, RJ. And Jeff Van Gundy's wearing College of Charleston. And does he look happy? He was rude. I'm just going to tell you, and it's not good for preachers to gossip and all, but I'm just not a fan anymore of Jeff Van Gundy. He just wasn't nice. He was eating dinner with his family and thought I was being rudely intrusive by coming up and having my son have his picture taken with him. But for real, here's what I noticed. Uh, some of you are like, who's Jeff Van Gundy? Bad illustration. Okay. Some of you guys are like, that's really cool. But Jeff, look, here's what I noticed that people, we acted different when Van Gundy was in the room. You, you, you noticed that a friend of mine caught Dion having a burger to shake at Brent's a few weeks ago, you know, snapped a picture, tried to be cool, but we act different when certain people are in the room. Stay with me for just a second because I want this to be real for somebody. The message of Jesus is that God is in the room. The message of Jesus is that God, though transcended and though sovereign and though he reigns on a throne and though he's judge and creator, he can be near. And here's the thing, you can know it. You can know it. And so today, this prayer from, from Matthew 6, and just a little bit of context, um, Jesus in his day, here were a few things about prayer that was part of the culture, part of uh, the religious psyche of the day. One thing is, note takers, this is your cue, but we don't have the slide, but maybe good to write down, but it was more of a formal exercise than it was a free expression. One more time. It was more of a formal exercise, prayer, than a free expression. Um, another thing, it was a long prayers with flowery words, 
long prayers with flowery words. Another thing is that it was a cause of pride more than it was a humble expression of need. And so Jesus, I think some of you know, one of his areas he just, he just shone with brilliance is how he pointed out religious hypocrisy. Isn't hypocrisy a crazy thing? Hypocrisy at the root of it is you want attention. You want your life to be validated. You want people to notice. In fact, you do things that religious people pray, give and fast and do a host of other things to be seen by other people. Man, we, you know, there's, there's a hypocrite in all of us, I believe, because we all have a sin nature. But that whole like, look at me, I want attention is the very thing that, that, that turns us off. When you know someone that's looking to be validated, and acts like they don't need the validation, but they need the validation. That is, let's be honest, like it's an ugly part of me. It's an ugly part of you. It's in all of us, but it's such an ugly thing. And Jesus is saying, don't you see? Like, in fact, he even said, Nick Crawford preached this a couple of weeks ago. Hey, you have your reward. If you're praying and you're giving and you're fasting to be seen by other people, he's, he was employing a literary device called sarcasm. I'm pretty good at sarcasm myself. Jesus said, hey, if you do that to be seen by other people, you have your reward. And oh, how empty it is. Anybody know about the praise of people? Anybody know how fleeting it is? Anybody know how fickle people are? Anybody know uh, Southern folks are good at this? We can talk really good to your face and not so good behind your back. And we can turn on each other and we do that. The Bible says a lot about betrayal and friendships. When friends betray each other, it can happen and it stings. And Jesus is saying, uh, don't do things to be seen by other people. Like that's a needle to the vein that will never, ever be satisfied. So Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer in a culture that said, here's a formal expression, a, a formal exercise, not a free expression. To people who were praying these long, they found, archaeologists have found in the Holy Land, they have found prayers from Jesus' day where there were 16 adjectives before the word God. How about that? Like if, if you, look, I love to pray, I love to pray with some of you, but if you're dropping 16 adjectives before God, I don't, I don't know if I'm still there. Like if your eyes are closed, I'm probably gone. 16 adjectives, like, you know, uh, it, isn't prayer funny? Like uh, any, anybody have funny things that you just learned from your family, you know, dear Lord, Father, dear Lord, Father, dear Lord, Father. We had a guy, uh, led worship one time. He said, uh, uh, Daddy God, and he lost half our congregation just by saying, just by saying, Daddy God. It was like people left. They were Christians. They left atheists that day because, because he said, Daddy God. I was counseling, uh, people for weeks and months after that with Daddy God. But there, there are these words that we say and we, we say them. And if we're not careful, we're saying them to impress other people. And Jesus to this speaks. And so here's what Jesus did. Before he teaches us how to pray, he teaches us how not to pray. And here's what he said. He had three things here. He said, uh, don't be a hypocrite. Don't use a lot of repetition. And don't harbor anything against one another. Wait, what? What's that fourth thing have to do with prayer? Well, kind of everything. Kind of everything. A few weeks ago, I had the gumption to, and the courage to stand up here and preach First uh, Peter 3. I, I texted a friend of mine the night before. He's like, preach from the message that day. It's just softer there. But in First Peter 3, it says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. It calls her a weaker vessel. That's not an insult. It's actually a compliment. If you look at the Greek language and understand the implications, but live with your wife in an understanding way. In other words, be a student of her. Live with her. And be a student of her. And if you don't love her well, your prayers will be hindered. 
Matthew 18, many chapters after he dropped the Lord's Prayer, he said, hey, if you come to church, if you go to the sanctuary and you come to worship and you know that you've got something against a brother or sister, go and work that out first. Because you see, we think that we can do this while we treat other people wrongly and while we're in wrong relationship with others. And look, nobody wants to hear this. I'm just adding to the pain of prayer. Like if you're frustrated by prayer, this isn't gonna help, but maybe it could help. But like we need to have good relationships. We need to care about the people and the people and fellas, look, and if you lead in this church, you know I keep this in front of you. I do not get it perfectly. Good gracious, my wife's on the front row every Sunday. She can stand up and testify that I don't get it perfectly right. I don't have to be perfect, but I do need to be honest and I need to love her well. And the Bible teaches us that if you don't lead your family well, don't export that into the church house. You can be really good at business, but if you don't lead well at home, don't lead in the church. Now, I want there to be grace because that's kind of a hard word. So let grace, I'm releasing grace. If that was too harsh, there's grace. Is it, they go to the balcony up there? Anybody remember uh, this guy, Eddie Haskell? Y'all remember Leave It to Beaver? Anybody? High school seniors? Ask your parents about that. You may have to ask your grandparents about this guy. Uh, Eddie Haskell was known as uh, in sitcom land. He was really nice. If you look at the bottom one first, oh, good afternoon, Mrs. Cleaver. I was just telling Wallace, known as Wally, how pleasant it would be for Theodore, that's the beaver, to accompany us to the movies. Um, and then here is Eddie saying, Wally, if your brother, your dumb brother tags along, I'm gonna dot, dot, dot. So Eddie Haskell was the classic hypocrite. He was the classic say things, but it was empty flattery, not a genuine expression of connection. And the older you get, the less tolerance you have for empty flattery. Like I had someone come to me and just drop the truth on me a couple of weeks ago and it stung a little bit. It wasn't entirely my fault, but it, I was kind of in the vicinity. I had to own a little bit of it and it just hurt. But you know, I, I just, I got to a point, maybe it's a little bit of spiritual maturity, but I just appreciated the dude. He was walking down the hall and I was like, man, I'm, I like that guy. Like that wasn't easy to do. And some people don't do that. Some people hide and just ghost me or fade away, but, or give me empty flattery. And that does no good. It may be, it's like cotton candy. It feels good a little bit, but it, it does you no good. There's no nourishment there. And Eddie Haskell is a great example of a, of a hypocrite, of someone that's just saying the words and it doesn't mean anything. So into this, Jesus gives us, he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And so the Lord's Prayer, I would say about half the room could quote it or get some of it right. And some of you, you come from a religious faith or tradition where you were required to say it, I got married in a Lutheran church in Rolling Hills, Palos Verdes, California, and a Lutheran pastor had to play a part. I brought in a friend from Mississippi to do the wedding, to, to marry Susan and I, but the, the Lutheran church there on the West Coast required that we say the Lord's Prayer. And I remember going, I don't want to say the Lord's Prayer. That's not my tradition. Like, I, you know, I love the Lord's Prayer, but I don't want to have to say it. He was just tapping into my sin nature, right? I don't think we should be forced to say this prayer. So today I'm not saying to you that you should be forced to say the prayer, but I'm just saying to, to people, not, not religious people, just human beings, your soul cries out. 
your soul cries, and you hope this is true. How many of you, like you hope this is true, that salvation is greater than sin, life is greater than death, that what we see is not all there is, that there's something beyond, something more, something greater than what we experience now, and your soul cries out for it. You want your prayers to be heard. Survey, I preached this before, survey says the number one reason that people pray is because of answered prayer. Correspondingly, the number one reason people don't pray is because of unanswered prayer. So what if for a moment, we don't have much time, but what if for a moment we just sat in this moment and thought about the weeks ahead where you will come back to church or you will watch online and you'll follow this series with us as we look deep, we're just skimming the surface today, but as we look deep uh, line by line at this prayer. Because here's the thing about this prayer. Uh, the order of the prayer shows us priorities. The, need, the request of the prayers correspond to our needs and it hits every dimension of life. If you're weary at the world we live in and you're growing just depressed with school shootings and terrorist threats and amber alerts and all the division and rancor and challenge, there is a part of this prayer that could speak beautifully to you. You know, there's a love-hate relationship with the word prayer because of the reality of prayer, but there's a love-hate relationship with the phrase in our day in the United States of America with this, thoughts and prayers. You with me? Thoughts and prayers. You say that to some people after something, they'll get, they'll, like you just, you just swung a bat at a hornet's nest. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Why do people get frustrated with that expression? Anybody speak up if you're, like, if you're tired of that expression because we want action. We want action because prayer, it seems, is empty. Prayer is where we're not addressing the problems of the world. And it may feel that way because there's a difference in praying and doing, but don't think prayer is not doing. Uh, Chris Mixon, I'm going to keep bragging on him, but uh, he just a stupid guy. He ran 55 miles a few Saturdays ago, 55 miles. He set a state record in running 55 miles. He ran the hills of Fondren, our student pastor right here, 55 miles. Now that inspires me. What if Chris told me, hey, I prayed about running 55 miles. I'm not gonna be preaching about Chris praying about running 55 miles, but the dude did it. The dude did it and he set a state record on a hot day with hills and 12 hours. He just kept running and he ran 55 miles. It's the doing that inspires us. And can I say that when we get excited about prayer, it's not a contradiction between passively sitting and not doing. In fact, I'll tell you part of my testimony is when I do pray and the prayer is fervent, the prayer is earnest, and there's some sense of heartbreak, it leads to my feet doing something about it. Is that true for anybody? The Greeks had a saying that when our hearts are right, our feet will be swift. And prayer is about getting our heart right. And so... Let's take a look for a second of the Lord's Prayer in a few different languages. It's only 57 words in the original prayer that Jesus gave. Padre nuestro que estás en el cielo, santificado sea tu nombre. Venga a nosotros tu reino. Danos hoy nuestro pan de cada día y perdona nuestras ofensas como también nosotros perdonamos a los que nos ofenden. No nos dejes caer en tentación y líbranos del mal. Amén. Notre Père, qui es aux cieux, que ton nom soit santifié, que ton règne vienne, que ta volonté soit faite, sur la terre comme au ciel. 
Donne-nous aujourd'hui notre pain de ce jour. Pardonne-nous nos offenses, comme nous aussi nous pardonnons à ceux qui nous ont offensés. Ne nous induis pas en tentation, mais délivre-nous du mal, car c'est à toi qu'appartiennent dans tous les siècles le règne, la puissance et la gloire. Amen. Vater unser im Himmel, geheiligt werde dein Name, dein Reich komme, dein Wille geschehe, wie im Himmel, so auf der Erden. Aus unser tägliches Brot gib uns heute und vergib uns unsere Schuldigen. Und führe uns nicht in Versuchung, sondern erlöse uns von den Bösen. Denn dein ist das Reich und die Kraft, dein Kraft und die Heiligkeit in, in Ewigkeit. Amen. Onze Vader, die in de hemelen zijt, uw naam wordt geheiligd, uw koninkrijk komen, uw wil geschieden, gelijk in de hemel, alzo ook op aarde. Geef ons heden ons dagelijks brood en vergeef ons onze schulden, gelijk ook wij vergeven onze schuldenaren. En leid ons niet in verzoeking, maar verlos ons van de boze. Want van u is het koninkrijk en de kracht en de heerlijkheid tot een eeuwigheid. Amen. Manya wang lido, kota kwan nabregoi, ete tunolobiogoi, ete manega na wanangolebei walido, isaraja wanang yoga telongi, togo na gorosiogoi, iwanagogi na gorosi, jalati gorosiogoi, yoroga janasta, ati toro janaroga jamin. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Just today, we only have a few minutes, but just today, those first four words, again, these weeks ahead, we're going to walk through it. But today, the first four words, our Father in heaven. Jesus says, he doesn't use, when t talking about prayer, he says, we're not addressing some impersonal deity. We're not uh, addressing some faraway figure. We're not, a, he didn't even use traditional Jewish names for God. He didn't say judge or creator, redeemer, reconcile or sustain. He, he said, our Father, our Father in heaven. A few years back, I think it was five or six years ago, there was a, a dad who took his daughter to, a, they were season ticket holders, and that particular game, he took his daughter uh, with him. She was a little bitty girl, about two and a half, three years old. I don't know if anybody remembers this. It's, we have an amateurish uh, quality clip here. And uh, he had never caught a foul ball. If you go to baseball games, you know they come uh, in your vicinity. Look at this dad reaches over. He catches a foul ball. Watch his daughter. She doesn't know what to do. She's daddy, daddy. He hands her the ball, and she tosses it back. Now, that's, 
That's worth a couple thousand bucks there. And look, look at the dad. What's he going to do? And that's what he does. So dads, what's he thinking in that moment? He's thinking, I really wanted that ball. Oh, that was a hard hug. Do you notice that? Like pulls her close. He's like, Ugh. he might have snuck one in there. But like he wanted that foul ball. But what was he doing? Now he knows, he knows, he knew all the eyes were on him. So he was on his best behavior, just like you are. When everybody's watching you, you're going to do the right thing when everybody's watching you. And so the right thing, but you just see that it's in his heart. You can just see the joy right on his face. And he's like, man, I wanted that foul ball. Mm. But you know what? You're my greatest possession because I'm your father and you're mine. And I believe that's what Jesus wanted to get through to every would-be follower. The kingdom is near and there's a God that you can know who can be near to you. Our God He's always father, always. And think about a parental relationship. It gets, it gets, it gets pretty powerful when I say this because there's really no word like dad. Uh, it's not a neutral word. Like just nod your head if you agree with me, but no, almost nobody's indifferent about the word dad. It's a, it's, a, it's a blessed word that elicits emotions of joy or it's a word that's like, man, God, why? It's a, it's a very hard word. Anybody that does counseling, any therapist in the room, you know that dad, uh, years ago, um, only a couple of years ago, we did a sermon on forgiveness and we opened up pre-COVID, we opened up the altar and we had you write on cards who you need to forgive and bring it before the Lord as a physical manifestation of God being a healer and how he can help you forgive. And the number, the number two person that you said you needed to forgive was yourself. But the number one person far and away was dad. So this image, Jesus, look, Jesus knew what he was doing. He always does. Jesus knew what he was doing. And he was wanting to point us to a God that's infinitely better than any earthly father that we could ever dream or think of. In fact, he said this one time to be super clear in Luke chapter 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, <laughs> I love his honesty, you know how to good, give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Parakletus is the Greek word. Para means to come alongside of. In other words, the Holy Spirit will come alongside of you. And actually, deeper than that, he'll live within you. That's the goodness of God. And he's a good God. Our God, Jesus wants you to know this morning, is always Father. And he's always, he is always good. And also, he is always near. When Jesus came early on, he had a trailblazer, a front runner named John the Baptist, who was a crazy dude. And John the Baptist came to, to announce the way of the Lord, to prepare the way. And he himself said about the coming Messiah, and Jesus himself said when he got here, he said that this is good news of great joy for all people. Now, normally we preach that at Christmas, good news of great joy for all people. The gospel, we said on Easter, is radically inclusive. It, it's for everybody. It's good news, good news of great joy for all people. But what's the condition? To repent and to believe the good news. It ain't good news for you if you don't believe the good news, if you don't have it come in but he said repent for the kingdom of uh, heaven is at hand now jesus said in this prayer our father what in 
heaven. And all of you said, who spoke out loud, you, you know that he taught in our English translation, it's rendered heaven, but it's actually in the heavens. It's how it was given. And the idea they're not singular, but plural. Stay with me here. It's probably a complicated subject to introduce at this late in the sermon, but stay with me. But Jesus is saying it's not, the idea there was not out there far away fairy tale land. The idea is that it would be near. It wasn't a location. It was a condition. Now we interpret it through English eyes and ears of, oh, it's, it's, you know, he's in heaven. He's, he's way up in heaven. But Jesus wanted people to know, no, it's not a location, it's a condition. It's right here. The kingdom of heaven is here. You know we're going to get there in a few weeks, but thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is a place of joy and bliss. Heaven is a place where God reigns supremely. And we are, in a little bit, what we can do in the power of his spirit, we bring, uh, we join him in bringing heaven to earth. And God is always Father. God is always good. God is always near. And fourthly and finally, God is always in charge. It says this in Hebrews 4, 16. It says this about you and I. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Keep that up for just a moment. Let me ask you, who's on the throne? Who's on the throne? We're about, to, we're about to end here, so answer if you will. The team's coming out. We're gonna we're gonna sing and we're gonna go in just a moment. Uh, but who's on the throne? It's kind of like Grant's tomb. Whose tomb is it? Grant's tomb. Who's on the throne? God's on the throne. God's on the throne. And then let me ask you, what kind of throne is it? It is not a throne of performance or achievement. It's not even. I'm being kind of a stickler here. It's not even a throne of faith. It's a throne of grace. The condition is not on us. It's not up to us. This is not us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. This is us coming humbly. Remember Jesus said, and it's so paradoxical, that you'll find happiness. You'll find happiness when you are poor in spirit, when you are broken, and when you are meek, and when you are humble, and when you bring peace to other people. If you're stirring up conflict, and you're jockeying for position, and you're trying to lead in a cutthroat environment, and you're looking out for your needs above those in your life, you're not going to find happiness. Fleeting, temporary, transient happiness, maybe. But real happiness, it says, when we come, and we come to a throne of grace. Who's on the throne? God is on the throne. What kind of throne is it? It's a throne of grace, and it's a, it's a throne for people who know that we need help who know that we cannot do it on our own and the needs around this room are so great I don't pretend to know everybody and everything but I know the needs are great and I know some of you are bright and smart and competent but it's not working well for you now and you're finding out that your sufficiency your self-sufficiency is not going to get you there So the invitation for prayer is not go through a formal exercise. It's more freedom of expression. One writer said that we really need three words to be honest in prayer. Wow, thanks, and help. And some of us put 16 adjectives in front of God. Or we we approach the throne, if we do it all, we approach it with fear. And let me be honest with you, this is not a good thing to say as we close, but I don't do this well a lot. I bring insecurity, I bring my mess, 
and I'm skittish at times. Oh, but to come to the throne of grace with confidence that he hears. You don't have to wonder if God hears you if you pray as Jesus prayed. That's what we're going to preach. You don't have to wonder if he hears you. You don't have to wonder if God will answer. Sometimes God delivers us from Psalm 40 and verse 2. You too made a song about it. God will deliver you from the pit, from the miry clay. He'll put your feet up on a rock and let you stand. Sometimes God answers your prayer by delivering you from something. Sometimes Isaiah 43, he delivers you by, by taking you through something. You got to go through the fire. Sometimes Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, he delivers you as you pray. He delivers you later. You're not going to see it. You're going to see it later. But God can give that to you. He can give you that deliverance. He can give you that answer to prayer. He can give you that peace. We come boldly to the throne of grace. God, would you stand with me? God is always Father. God is always good. God is always near. And God is always in charge. In your marriage, He's always God. Always Father. He's always good. He's always near. He's in charge. In your work relationships, in your place of struggle, in your loneliness right now, with that doubt and what you're wrestling with, He's always Father, always good, always near, and always in charge. Father, we pray today. We thank you for rejoicing in baptism. We thank you for uh, releasing seniors to the next step. But God, we don't want to miss a prayer that you gave. A prayer that you said, repeat after me, not in rote memory, not without thinking, but with passion and with expectation. And Lord, we are all weary by this world and we're tired of what we've been through and we are hurting and we see incredible injustice and oppression and thoughts and prayers is not promoting our passivity but our activism when we're with you and when our heart breaks for the things that break your heart and when we pray prayers about your nearness and your sovereignty and your sense of rule and dominion and with hope that we can have better relationships and we can bring light to this world. Lord, I pray that you move us as we study this afresh. This we pray in Jesus.